Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. About a decade ago, I think even more than a decade, uh, I researched, wrote, and published uh, a book called The Visionary State, A Journey Through California's Spiritual Landscape. And I did this book with the photographer Michael Rahner, and uh, we worked closely with a friend of ours who was edited, who was an editor at Chronicle Press, and it it was really an absolutely excellent experience in the sense that we got to do exactly what we wanted, like our vision of what the book was going to be. It's a heavily illustrated uh, journey through uh, the history of alternative, mostly alternative religion in California, telling the story through the the places, not so much the people. Although we talk about, the, I write the stories of the people. But what you see are images of all these holy spots, uh, temples, uh, ashrams, yoga studios, Burning Man, you know, a whole wide range of alternative and uh, some less alternative religion, but all with a California flavor to it. And, you know, it's funny, I'd get some kind of regular questions about it. People ask me if I'd been to all the places I wrote about. And unfortunately, I still have not. There's still a few that I haven't been to. And of course, people always had you know suggestions for ones. Oh, how come you didn't go here? And so I have a whole long list of other marvelous places. But one is just like, what is your what was your favorite place? And I had places that uh, that were architecturally spectacular. You know, some of my favorite buildings, not just in California but in the world. Uh, Maybeck's uh, First Church of Christ Science in in Berkeley, for example, is is one of the most magical buildings I've ever been in. But in terms of being a, a, a spot where uh, religion is happens, where devotion happens, where uh, the gods are alive, uh, it was uh, unquestionably Kali Mandir, which is uh, an extraordinary and very unusual uh, temple to the Hindu goddess <laughs> uh, in Laguna Beach, California. And uh, I've had the opportunity to, to go there and visit a number of times, uh, and it's always been a place of uh, kind of uh, refuge and voyage and re-inspiration for me personally, partly because in a very unique way that's just singular to my own personality, I would say that I have a relationship with, with Kali. And it's kind of a funny thing to say on the show, because most of this time I sort of maintain a kind of a little more skeptical, sort of secular critical approach. And all of those things are still on board when I say something like, I, in some ways I have a relationship with this deity, uh, because I, mostly at, at some point I met other weird freaks like me who had uh, these interesting relationships through imagery, through their own practice, through their reading, through synchronicity. Uh, there's all sorts of ways that whatever the gods are can speak to us, can connect with us. And, and for whatever reason, again, through a lot of synchronicities, personal connections, conversations, uh, reading, um, uh, people that I've known, and then my own interests, once I became kind of uh, interested in Kali, I, I pursued it in my own way. I, I'm not a, a, a formal devotee, uh, but uh, she's a friend of mine or, you know, a big sister. <laughs> and uh, uh, so it's kind of funny, but I so uh, I just got an announcement from Kali Mandir that they're having their 25th anniversary, and they're also doing a, uh, a crowd rise fundraising to, you know, get the, they're, they're doing pretty good uh, financially, but they would love to pay off the mortgage and really 
set up the temple, and we'll we'll hear a little bit more about what makes the temple location really unique. It's in a it's in an old um, neighborhood. You know, it's not in a sort of set off on a hill somewhere. It's it's a was a re- residential house that has become uh, a temple. And it's a wonderful place to visit. Uh, so I thought it would be a great time to stop and, and talk to uh, uh, the two main honchos at, uh, at, at uh, Kali Mandir, Usha Harding and Swami uh, Bhajanananda. And so we'll just talk to them one at a time, and, uh, and it uh, should be a good conversation. So Usha, uh, thanks for uh, joining me on Expanding Mind. Thank you for having you, and very happy to hear you're doing well and you're having podcasts, and I'm honored that you're interviewing us. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You guys do a podcast too, right? We do. Swami, Swami's lectures, he, he does a podcast, and he, we also broadcast our pujas and so on. So uh, it's, it's be, we've become a lot more socially active worldwide because people, sometimes 6,000 people watch a puja, which is impossible in our little temple here they couldn't all fit in but with uh social media it helps a lot yeah that, that's I great was, you were saying you know, I was in your introduction you said the key word and the key word is really a relationship um you know if i think about when i was younger i thought i was doing things and i was initiating things and things were happening as I'm old now, I'm looking back and I just see that everything has happened because I have a relationship. And I have a relationship with Ma, I have a relationship with Sri Ramakrishna. And I'm in no means unique because all of us have relationships. It's just that most people don't pay attention to them. And then the world is no longer magic. You get, you become depressed, you become, feel lonely. But all of us have this most incredible relationship with God in whichever form we choose. Now, with me, it's uh, Sri Ramakrishna and Ma, and um, I could talk forever how I started this temple. I really think I didn't. I kind of slid into it. I was a journalist, and I was living a secular life. I mean, I was a devotee of Sri Ramakrishna, but there was, you know, I was living by myself, and I had you know, going out, doing this, doing that. And all of a sudden, there's this deity from India who showed up. And after that, one thing after the other happened, and this temple happened. It was never a plan. It kind of happened. Just, to, I just I want to stop for a little bit just because I know that story. And I, I think the, some, of the, some of the details are, are really interesting in that you, you went to uh, Dakshvinishwar in, in outside of Calcutta to, to go uh-huh. and, and connect with... Ramakrishna, who's of course this great 19th century saint, uh, ecstatic, profoundly um, uh, influential, and in all the people around him who, who had the had the blessing to see him, out of, and out of whom came uh, some very significant currents of Indian spirituality in the 20th century, uh, particularly the Vedanta Society. Um, but he had just uh, such a remarkable power, and so it was going there that you kind of encountered Ma and. Um, and you kind of were sort of trying to do some research and realizing that there wasn't really anything written about her, and that led to the, to your to your book, right? That is true, but all of that really is sort of an external thing. Uh, what the internal thing is that you don't really get it. It's just like the baby has a relationship with uh, its mother, and you don't really have. Uh, 
a uh, it doesn't you have to write about it. You don't have to read about the baby. It's an instinctual thing, and I think everything that has happened has come out of an instinctual thing that the relationship between Ma and me, the relationship between Sri Ramakrishna and me, that I wrote a book, I started a temple, obviously I was working at it, but I feel, and I did not know it at the time, but now looking back, I feel the magic is out there for everybody to take. And you can, you can get it, you just need to open up to it. And I don't know, I didn't open up to it by choice. I kind of was driven into it. And the book happened because I was in India in 86 and I had a desire to take some pictures of Ma. So I, I was told impossible, you cannot take pictures. There is, it's, it's against the, the rules, no way. So I was sitting with my camera outside the temple and out comes this lady from the inner shrine and she says, my mommy told me to feed you. So she puts the sandwich in my mouth and it turned out to be one of the part owners of the temple. And she gave me permission to take pictures. So I took a picture which became extremely famous all over India. Uh, nobody knew that I took it, but that picture circulated around. But uh, this picture, I tried to get one of the Swamis at the Ramakrishna order to um write a book and I was going to give my picture so you know he could write a book a wonderful writer actually and uh, he refused to see me refused to see the picture and refused to deal with me so the then president of the Ramakrishna order Swami Gumbirananda he said uh, well you write the book and in a way this made me a writer and I researched and researched and wrote, wrote a book called Kali the Black Goddess of Dokshineshwar and uh, so when this book came out, I found a publisher, the publisher, it came out in 1993. And uh, they said, well, why don't you show people what a puja is like? You know, all the priests, you know, everybody in Dokshineshwa, you bring them over and we'll do a festival. So that was the first festival. And uh, I had no intention of doing it again. But um, the people who helped me put on the festival because I did not know how to do this. Uh, they turned out to be not so nice. They ran off with um, the ghat, which is the vessel which you install in, not just the image, but the vessel. So I was forced to do another puja the next year. And, and everybody liked it so much, so we did one after the other. So for 17 years, the main pujari of the Dokshineshvakali temple came to Laguna Beach to be part of our annual Kali Puja festival. And it became wildly known and it's magic. And uh, living with Ma taught me how magic is life. It's absolutely wonderful. Yeah, those are, uh, those are marvelous words. One thing that I, that I like thinking about is, you know, this was part of what motivated my, my own journey with, the, with California was, was feeling that when, you, when you're talking about religion and when you're talking about spaces of devotion, particularly when you're talking about temples, about places where the deity resides or where people go in order to commune with deity, that the land is really, really important. You know, it's a lot of what's going on is also about the land. And so I'd love to hear like what your how you how you have come to discover the magic in the particular canyon where you are you know laguna beach 
whatever reasons you were in Laguna Beach, but also just the particular plot of land where you wound up and the kind of magic that has come up from that particular part of the planet. When the image of Ma came in 1993, I lived in a one-bedroom apartment in Laguna Beach. And uh, so she came, as I said, there was no plan for temple or any such thing. And uh, we, when the priest left, he says, you have to do puja because you have to, I mean, an awakened image has to, you have to do puja. Uh, I should also mention that the annual Kali Puja festivals were held in a school called Annalisa School, which is in the canyon. And uh, she, um, she, um, rent us this, this space and that's where we held that's where ma was awakened but i lived in a one-bedroom apartment so people would be coming over to my one-bedroom apartment and there would be more and more shoes outside and all of a sudden there were like 40 pairs of shoes and the neighbor downstairs with his broomstick he would push against against the ceiling when he get annoyed about all the religious noise so then um the um, Haradanji, uh, he got very upset one day when the neighbors were complaining about the religious noise. He says, you should live in a freestanding house. So then he left for India and miraculously, a couple of months later, for some reason or other, I didn't even plan to move. This house was for rent and I came here and I, I actually wasn't sure about it, but um, we, I rented it, we moved in, that was like 1995. And um, I was here, I would say, maybe a few months, and a huge flood happened. And I was, the house, I mean, was surrounded by water because we live right next to a creek. And so what happened, I was standing across the street looking at this devastation, and I was thinking, my God, what did I do? I brought mine to this situation. This is very dangerous. Where, where do I move to? And just as I was standing there looking at the out of the flood came a Rudraksha Mala at my feet. And I look at it, and I thought, well, that's definitely a sign I shouldn't move. Because in India, if you find a Rudraksha Mala, no, no, it's it's quite common, but in America, it wasn't my Rudraksha Mala or anybody's Rudraksha Mala. That a Rudraksha Mala would come here floating down in the flood. It's very unusual. Every time I thought of moving, there's some miraculous thing happened. So we figured out that Ma wanted to stay here. But what happened with the canyon, um, this was an area where the Native Americans were here, the shamans. A lot of, of, of the shamans would be, uh, the agricultural Indians would be in the, not in the valley, but they wouldn't be in the canyon. So you can feel it. Where Ma was awakened, as I mentioned, Annalisa School, there is an uh, American Indian burial ground there. So this is very holy area. It's like a vortex. You can feel it. It's uh, Before we came here, we didn't create this area, this, this spirituality. It's already here. You can worship Ma anywhere you want, but if you worship her in a mall, it's fine, but you don't get the vibe. Here, it is the vibe. It's the, the area is full. The, the land is full of beings, uh, embodied and disembodied. And you can just feel all that. And that is very conducive for spiritual sadhana and spiritual practice. Y y 
I feel also compelled to, to mention that, that Laguna Beach was an extremely important place in the, in the 60s as well, uh, that there was a, a whole center of, uh, of all sorts of wild activity and arts and uh, festivals and the, uh, the notorious Brotherhood of Eternal Love. Uh, with their psychedelic uh, campaign, and so, uh, uh, and I've seen some some uh, you know remainders of those era that those that era as well. So it, it is very much a layered uh, place, and I, I, th- I think that's something that you really feel uh, in that particular canyon is the, is the kind of layers of, uh, of of culture and spirit that are there. Yeah, the vibration is definitely you can you can feel it. I mean, uh, you can interpret like artists interpret it as inspiration. I interpret it as spirituality. But whatever you want to call it, you can feel it. It's 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 very special. Well, one of the things that that sets uh, Kali Mandir uh, apart from most uh, Hindu temples in America, and you could kind of divide them into two. There were those places that were founded, uh, you know, generally by by Indian gurus or spiritual leaders, but with largely Western followers. And then there are all of the temples that are founded by uh, 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 immigrants or, or, you know, second, third generation Indians who want to have a proper temple for their own community. And by community, I don't just mean Indians. I mean like their particular language group. Like you go to a, a temple that's an Indian, South Asian temple in, in the States, and most of it, it's like they're all from Gujarat or, you know, or they're all from, you know, from the South or from Tamil or whatever. They're, they tend to be clustered around language groups. And Kali Mandir, when you guys decide, or when you decided to keep worshiping the statue or the murti, this manifestation, and you decided, no, we're not going to put it into the ocean, which is what you would traditionally do if you weren't going to do a puja all the, every day. You go, okay, now we're going to keep this going. You didn't have a structure. You weren't gurus. You weren't even in a Western lineage. It, it's sort of this freestanding conjunction of things, which is remarkable and rare in, in, in the tradition of, in America. And it's led to, let me just, one more little question, it's led to a very beautiful space that's extremely open to everybody, uh, different South Asian groups, Western monks, hippies, wandering sadhus. Like I've seen such a wide range of people in my, in my few visits there. And so it, it really, I, I mean, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about how it evolved in terms of what kinds of people came and how you discovered there were communities of, of, that were resonating with, with Ma that, that you'd, you hadn't anticipated. I'd love to hear about that. Eric, I feel this is purely the grace of Sri Ramakrishna. He said, God is one, sages call him by various names, him or her. And that, I think Kalimandir stands for breaking down barriers. There is, everybody comes here, whether you're straight or gay, whether you're a Westerner, whether you're Indian, people from all over India come. It's a temple for everybody. And I think from day one, it's always been that way, that everybody's welcome. And it has a unique spirituality for the more mature spiritual person because we're not so steeped in rules. Like we're very traditional. 
but we are not, I, I think of it more in a spiritual sense than a religious sense, even though we follow Hinduism. But Hinduism is so broad that everybody can find room in Hinduism. Also, we're not fanatic. So um, it is a room where it's kind of cozy because it's Ma's house. So you come to see your Ma. And people, again, getting back to the relationship, people have established relationships with the image. And once you do that, uh, be it a picture, be it an image, be it anything, if you put your love and attention to it, it becomes alive. And when it becomes alive and you have a relationship, especially if there's a lot of people who have relationships, um, people get results. Like uh, people come to me and they, they cry and some horrible things are happening in their lives. I have no power, but Ma has the power. So what do I do? How do I, uh, how do I help them? Uh, some people are so upset they can't pray anymore, so they don't know what to do. So I tell them, well, you go outside, uh, sweep the courtyard. Ma will see you from there. And they go out and they sweep and somehow Ma and them they resolve their problems and they come back, uh, you know, smiling, saying, oh, my God, Ma fixed it. So in a way, Ma and they fix it. But it's the relationship. It's the, the wonderful, wonderful relationship that we all have with the divine. We just have to know how to book into it. So does that answer your question? Oh, sure, sure. Um, I'm also curious about when, whether uh, South Asians who have come who come regularly or come to visit on, uh, for the for the the yearly puja? Whether they you've had any conversations or people have remarked on what it was like for them to come to this temple with its unusual background and its sort of mixture, uh, in contrast to maybe the more um, regional temples that they might otherwise go to in in California. Well, I think a lot has to do, they see our sincerity and they also see the upbringing. Like Swami Bhajanananda, I mean, he really learned puja and he's trained quite a few pujaris who really do puja in the traditional sense. And people see that. If they want to have a puja, an exact puja done by a South Indian priest, they will go to a South Indian temple. But when they're in trouble, when there is something in their lives that somebody's dying or somebody's sick, they come to us because they know Ma is alive. And they, they go bypass all the ritualistic uh, uh, ideals and so on. They want, they want results. They want to talk to Ma. And I think that sometimes ritual, when you get too exact, uh, yes, there are results, but the thing is you, you, Again, the relationship, there is the priest in between you and the deity. With us here, Swami Bhajanatha maybe do the puja, but they have a direct relationship with the image. They have a direct relationship with uh, the vibe here. And it's like, even if you don't see the image, you walk into Kalimundi and you feel something. The mailman walking in here going, oh, it's so peaceful here. What is this? It's it's like you walk into a perfume shop. You smell something. You don't have to be explained that this is perfume or whatever. Something happens to you. And I think if you come into a situation where you feel the divine, uh, you don't need an explanation. It's just there. 
And I think we're very honored that uh, people, very traditional Brahmins, they come here and they don't think we're Westerners and oh, these Westerners, some people do. If they're fanatic, they will say, oh, those white people are worshiping Kali, our Kali. But most people who come here, they come for spiritual reasons and they don't have that problem. Well, that's good to hear because I, I know that um, uh, there has been, you know, at, with the with the growth of of what some people call Hindu uh, fu- fundamentalism or the BJP, the the current ruling power in India, there have been more um, aggressive claims by some, you know, swamis and educators and politicians that uh, they're not <laughs> they're not into <laughs> white folks hanging around their religion. And it's a strange thing because from from coming from a more like uh, the countercultural background where where there was a sort of openness about uh, a for, forms of Hindu religiosity, even if the, some of them were more geared towards Westerners, it, there's still a, a tremendous openness about it. And that's always sort of my operating feeling. But sometimes you really get a sense from some people that they're... Uh, they're really not into that that mixture, and they're more interested in a kind of national identity through religion. Um, it doesn't sound like you've had to deal with that issue uh, up front too much. Like people haven't, you haven't had to get into conflict over, which is wonderful. Um, but do you do you sense some shifts there in terms of if just comparing the '90s to to now in terms of? a little bit more politicization about who gets to worship these deities? I, I, I sense a big shift, yes, but not with us. We're small, so people don't really, we're not political at all. Uh, we, we're not fanatic, we're not political. As I said, we follow Sri Ramakrishna's teachings, and we're really open for spiritual people. If anybody wants to come here and talk politics, we'll say, Please, you know, can you do this someplace else? Uh, we are not a business, uh, so anybody wanting to come do business here, also, please, you know, can you do this someplace else? Um, I don't. I hope that we do not have to encounter people coming here uh, uh, and trying to argue with us. And I would just say, would you, you know, if you don't like it here, please, kind of go someplace else. We're, I think we're too small for too small for people to really attack us or anything. Um, we're just providing an oasis for the people who need a place where they can be with the divine. And that's all we do. We do not have any arguments with anybody else out there. And uh, as I said, Sri Ramakrishna, by his grace, has helped us break down all the divisions uh, between the people because we are all humans. So, um, you know, brown, uh, white bodies, whatever. I don't look at myself as a uh, white person worshiping Kali. She's my mom. And... uh, when I go to India, I don't feel white. I don't. I. I don't look. I. I don't like divisions. I feel uh, under the divine, we're all children, and that's how my attitude is. Well, wonderful. Thanks so much for uh, for for sharing a little bit of your thoughts and your and your life with us. We're about halfway through, so I thought we we could sw- switch on over to. Okay. We're, we're switching chairs. We're switching, we're switching chairs. chairs as Bye, we speak. Eric. Wonderful. Bye, Bye Usha. Jai Ma. Ah, Jai Ma. Hey, Swami. How are you doing? Um, we haven't seen you in a long time. So please 
it's too no the next time i'm down in the southland i'm i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna make a visit it's been too long uh you know there's let's see there's a, a number of places i want to i would let things i would like to ask you but one is to talk a little bit about puja you know usha made a really interesting division she said look we're not that ritualistic we're not into lots of you know priestly layers and all the stuff but there is a core ritual the puja yeah. that is is you know every day you're banging it out there it's elaborate it requires a lot of flowers and it's very it's very traditional and so it's a strange um paradox where at the core of the ritual that sustains the temple is is a tra- very traditional practice which I want to ask you about, but somehow that then creates a container that lets yeah. everything in, that it's not yeah. like... Yeah, I think one thing which was, was maybe trying to focus on or trying to mention is that while we're, in one sense, we're almost like round zero as far as like Kali ritual. I mean, we're, we're doing very traditional puja, very elaborate, very correct uh, and informed with uh, the philosophy and the practice and the lifestyle. It's unusual, actually. I mean, I, I'm I'm... I'm pretty conscious of everyone doing anybody in America worshiping Kali, either privately or in group. I'm familiar with what they're doing. So I know what we're doing here is very unique and very authentic, unusually so. Right. But I think what the thing is we're not, but we're not ritualists. Although the ritual is going, we're actually devotees. That's how our, and out of devotion, we want to do the, we want to do the rituals properly. Right. We're also like, you know, we, we have an incredible music tradition here. We do, we have a lot of very talented, uh, singers and musicians but, we're, but, I, but I'm, I'm not a musician i'm a devotee and singing uh singing and, and 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 devotional music is part of my practice i also we also cook for we, we cook for the devotees and we cook for ma a special offering but i'm not a chef we're devotees we, we try to cook out of devotion we try to do everything the best we can the most authentically we can right so i'm also not a i mean i'm once i'm, I'm not an actual scholar but we're devotees we use our mind we use academic world we use uh scriptural knowledge to, to, as, as our worship of her. So I think that's that's one thing, because there, there are some groups, especially in the goddess tradition, that are very ritualistic. And the ritual becomes a way of devotion becomes, ritual becomes devotion, right? Uh, uh, devotion is only to the, it is shown by perfection in the ritual, right? We, our devotion is our, as Usha was saying, our, our relationship with God. And the ritual is one of the ways that's very powerful very and, and very effective. Um, uh, way of showing that and developing that. We we have a little saying here: puja works. You know, whatever it's supposed to do. Like I said, it creates it creates a, a container to hold all to hold all this. It creates a space. It creates an atmosphere for sure. You know, I know when I do when sometimes I go to people's homes to do uh, home pujas, and you know you enter a person's home. These are you know pious Hindu families, but they don't have a temple in their home, so the vibration is different. It has a regular regular. And by the time I finish, you know, an hour puja and fire ceremony, you know the whole atmosphere is charged and buzzing afterwards. You know, whatever the puja is supposed to do, it does do that, right? But out of devotion. If we do it out of, uh, uh, out of if we're ritualists in the classical sense, then then it's the, the ritual, the science, that any mistake in the science would be considered like null and void. You know, like you like if you misdial a phone, you don't get through, right? You know, so it's, we, don't, we don't perform ritual in that way. We feel Ma's right here, and out of devotion, we do everything as best we can, tradition, traditional ways of showing our devotion to her. 
And, and is it true, if I remember correctly, I mean, this was a conversation we had a, a quite many years ago, is that the, the elements of the puja are not all from one single tradition, but that there's a few different deep traditions that are sort of referenced and brought together. I mean, that's yeah, that's, that's fascinating that's a, to me. That's a very interesting thing. That I think the only person I ever said that to was you. You remember that after all these years. You know? <laughs> so our, really, our, 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 in our worship is based upon the tantric form of the puja, especially as found in Bengal. It's a very Bengali, you know, where Sri Ramakrishna worship, Dakshinishwar is in Bengal, and Sri Ramakrishna's tradition is Bengali tradition. And the, the, the mantras and the, the form of the, of the ritual is very much in that Bengali tradition. And in South India, there's a, there's a different style. There's different forms of goddess traditions, for instance, the Sri Vidya tradition, which is a very highly sophisticated uh, um, uh, um, ritual tradition in the South, of worshiping a different, fo- a different form of the goddess. Um, uh, but while our, tradition, our, our, our core ritual is based upon the Bengali uh, form, as well as Bengali mood and, 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 and sentiment uh, towards relation to the Divine Mother, we have incorporated some aspects of the Sri Vidya, the South Indian tradition, the Sri Vidya tradition, the Vaishnava tradition, because as as you mentioned, you, you talked about, this is the, the mixture of so many different devotees have come here. It's not just like, it's not a Bengali temple, although our tradition is Bengali in one sense, where it's not an ethnic temple, as you mentioned, right? So, you know, a Sri Yantra came, so the worship of the Sri Yantra came, you know, a, 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 a uh, Nishingadev deity came, so the word, the tradition of Nishingadev worship came, and long ago those pujas and mantras. So it has been. It, it, we don't have a completely like. It's not like if you go to Calcutta and buy a puja book in Calcutta, you know, that, that you recognize our pujas mostly that, but it definitely has incorporated some uh, aspects of other forms of Hindu worship for sure. And I assume that part of your practice is to train other uh, pujaris. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's our, that's our um, uh, uh, kind of my specialty in a certain sense, right? Uh, because also, because some, you know, we, we, we've many times we've, we've talked to people and Indian families and, and you know, they, they, they sometimes complain that they, they're taken to, they were taken to a temple of the child and they asked the priest, you know, what, what are you doing? And the priest says, just don't ask questions. Right, you know, it's like it's not that they don't know, but the people have faith in the they have faith in the rituals and pujas, so they have, they don't have much background. They don't need much background knowledge, although there is deep meaning, and that informs the, the cultural worship for sure. But kind of my specialty has been researching and studying and questioning and being trained in kind of the deeper meanings behind the ritual actions, and so it's kind of my. Um, Forte in a certain sense is is to explain that, be able to train not only in the technical details, how to pronounce the mantras and how to perform the hand gestures and ritual actions, but also the 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 kind of the the reason or the meaning behind the acts as well as the sources of them. And so I think that makes that makes the puja more more important than living to people. And so yeah, we we've trained a lot of uh, people into into do the worship. We have a few people here who are doing the worship daily here along along with us, um, that are you know just as you know they're they're extremely impressive pujaris and doing the puja with so much devotion and accuracy. But we have many others. We have published some small booklets and things like that. I don't know how to train on, on puja and, and guided people through it. So people in their homes are doing the worship very nicely daily or many people in different people's homes on the new moon. It's like we're doing our major pujas in the new moon. There's all people all over the United States doing the same puja or, or, or a simpler form of that puja that aren't necessarily priests at our temple, but they're priests in their homes. 
they're, they're worshiping Ma and they're, they're gathering a few friends and family. They're worshiping, they're offering food, they're singing, and the tradition continues this way. I, I know you just got a, a, a doctorate uh, in applied ministry from the new seminary for interfaith studies. Were, were you working on, on some of the on, on issues with, around puja? Well, my interest is that. So that's kind of the way I've, I've always approached. Uh, like, well, what I, love, I was joking the other day, I was remembering some years ago, we taught a class at UCI in the, in the yoga studies program. It was on like chakras and prana and, you know, the subtle anatomy. But all my talks were on puja. Right, because I understand subtle anatomy from the perspective of puja. That's my world. Uh, somebody else would would approach it from hatha yoga or something like another teacher, right? So everything I, so my my view of relig- my understanding of religion is very much informed by my ritual. So my my work is a lot on that, on on on, on the importance of uh, ritual, um, uh, kind of ri- ritual practice, right? But the 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 new seminary, you know, this has been around since the seventies. The oldest interface uh, seminary in the world, uh, been around since 1970, 1972, something like that. Um, and so it's very interesting by because we're also because as devotees of Sri Ramakrishna, we also have an orientation towards a universal approach, not just our own um, uh, worship of Kali, but we understand Kali to be the truth of all religions. You know, the one the one reality behind everything is given different names. We call Kali Sri Ramakrishna addresses Kali. It's her, her revelation is this universality of religion. And I've, I, and so I've been following them over the years, just kind of watching what's going on in the kind of interfaith studies, interfaith world. And they've always been very impressive to me. So we have made some connections over the years. And, and this year we kind of formalized a connection and continued uh, uh, working towards uh, this, this degree. Um, so it's not only ritual practice is my interest, but also the Ramakrishna Vivekananda um, uh, contribution to this interfaith understanding, this, this universal perspective of religion. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, I, I think often about um, there's a sort of, uh, there's a kind of sweet spot in world religion in the late 19th, early 20th century to the maybe the middle of the century, a little bit into the 60s, where there's it seems like a lot of different people are working on the possibility of like a global religion. In retrospect, it almost seems like lots of different people, spiritual people, political people, yeah. people who sensitive people were aware that like major globalization was just yeah. around the corner. Like it was coming fast. I mean, it was already there. The, the bones of it were already there. Yes. But but like, oh, my God, how are we going to become global without yeah. some kind of global interfaith thing that really works? Yeah. And people try different things. Da, da, da. And these days, you know, it's not not looking so hot from some perspectives uh, compared to some of the, the idealism and utopianism around around world religion before. So yeah. I'd like to hear you just since that's something you were you were looking at riff a little bit about what does it mean to be interfaith today? Uh, you know, n- not necessarily addressing all the political problems and the yeah, strife yeah. between religions, but just to continue in that spirit of universality at a point when a lot of people are very concerned with differences and and yeah. such. No, it's a very it's it's it's. Uh, I've been thinking about more. Like I mentioned, as devotees of Ramakrishna, it's our orientation. We've been thinking about it our whole life, our whole adult, all adult life at least. Right. But as recently, it's been coming more. Even before the my relationship with the school, um, it's become more of a focus because we've seen we've we've seen the attempt 
but it's the attempt is, as you mentioned, isn't going well, right? Uh, that's the problem, you know, and, and even those who are really sincere and want to see, you know, a universal religion or the universality of religion, they do it really badly. And in one sense, personally, it doesn't matter if you do it well. I mean, people, it's, it's a relationship and understanding of the heart. But when you speak publicly and, and becomes the voice of, 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 of modern religion, if it's not done well, it's, it's, it's not done. Right. And so, you know, you have, you know, like uh, I, you know, one magazine, uh, Hindu based magazine, you know, is, is listing who all the all the Hindu groups that aren't Hindu. Right. So this is a problem because, you know, uh, because they celebrate Christmas or something like that, something foolish like that, you know, uh, rather than seeing. So if it's not done well, it's it's almost not done. And so and, and you mentioned like the idea of like one, like a universal religion. So I mean, Vivekananda, my we went back when these topics came kind of into our in, into our into our face again, we went back to kind of these original talks on Vivekananda. There's one talk, I think it's called, I think it's called the universal, universal, universal religion or something like that. It's two talks, universal religion and is Vedanta the universal religion or something like that. And he talks about this, this, uh, this movement even a hundred years ago that of, of seeing that all religion become one religion, right? But Swami Vivekananda says that actually, God forbid that were to happen, mm-hmm. right? He says the, the, the new one religion will be all religions. Not all, not a, not all religions together. Right? Each person has their own relationship with God, their own tradition, and seeing the value of each tradition, but seeing, but being open to the truth, to, to how truth has revealed itself and how truth has been seen by others, right? Uh, um, and so that, and and many things in, in, as I as I as I began relationship with the inter, with the uh, new seminary, I get to there's a whole new like. Uh, ways of thinking or uh, discussion that, that I've, I've lost. I've been in the temple for 25 years, you know, and we not in the academic world. Or in, in the, so I've kind of lost some of the discussion. And one of the things they're talking about, one of, one of the important themes that, that they came up with is this, this, they turned, this term called stretching, which I've never heard about, right? Uh, 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 the, at the new seminary, it's a big idea that, you know, people, they're part of their religion, you know, they're literally you're a deeply religious person, a spiritual person, and you go to church every day, right? You have great art every week, and you have deep faith in Jesus and, and his revelation, but you're gay, or you don't believe in hell, or you don't believe that other people have to go to, have to, go to hell because they're not Christian or uh, the type of Christian you are, right? And so what, how, how do you, you have, to, you have to stretch yourself. We use the word differently. You probably you know, force yourself into... Uh, um, breaking off parts of who you, what you believe, in order to fit your religion, right? So Sri Ramakrishna, I mean, Swami Vivekananda in this talk, Swami Vivekananda, he gives, he gives, he talks about the exact same thing, but a hundred years ago, he says, so somebody comes with a, with a box and says, this is religion, right? This is some box. He said, everybody get in, right? This is a way to salvation. This is a truth, right? And and you say, what if I don't fit? He says, well, there's no choice. You know, if you don't fit, cut off your arm and get in, right? Because it's the only way. Right, so it says this is ridiculous. Swamiji says, you know, there that there's no one way for everybody. There's many ways. It's not one way. Not even you know, like Alex Huxley in in his uh, perennial philosophy, right? I'm rereading that book right now after many many years, and he says exactly the he almost makes a statement. I mean, I highlighted it. Is that the 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 the, the true religion is the religion that holds all religions is true in in, in the form of perennial philosophy. Well, that's that's unacceptable either. That's a that's a badly done universal universal religion. It's like all religions, all religions are really the perennial philosophy. 
instead of seeing the perennial philosophy within all religions. You know? Yeah, no, that's a wonderful point. I'm, gl- I'm so glad to, to that you made that. That's a that's become a really important part. It's actually a big part of my uh, of yeah. my thesis as well. Is is just ah. talking about the perennial religion, and while on one le- one level it was a helpful step towards imagining a different way of interrelating religions and encouraging people to go within and to to go on that that kind of quest that it also stumbled in a lot of ways and in ways that i think are are currently actually somewhat harmful Um, yes it can can be you know but i think it's very easy it's it's if you set that up as the truth of all religions it it can be knocked down easily right you know it doesn't take much actually most of i we sometimes joke here is that that most religion both traditional and new versions of the of, of like a universal or they can be defeated by, you know, a smart ass 12 year old. Right. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's, it's, that's my new test. What I say, will the past, like will pass one of the teenage kids here, you know, <laughs> and one of the edgy teenage kids that comes, you know, whether it'll pass there, you know, it, it won't hold up anymore, you know, but throughout, throughout, I'm going to be looking at the, the, we go, if I go back, well, for me, I go back to Sri Ramakrishna for my understanding of many of these things. And so he, he practiced his religion. Right. Of course, he practiced many forms of religion. He was shown and led, he believed, by the Divine Mother to practice different forms of religion. But it started with his overwhelming devotion to, to God as, and as his mother, as Mother Kali. Right. And his continuous, uninterrupted contemplation of God right, led to subsequent realizations. And those realizations, they, they end up revealing a depth of, of, of spiritual um, knowledge that's unprecedented, you know, what we'd hold is almost unprecedented, but transcends time, transcends place, transcends religions, and shows the foundation at the heart of all religions, right? It's not that he, that he, he, he you know, we get together and, you know, I do this, we get together, we think, oh, religion, the problem with modern religion is that it, it cannot, in the, in the modern global context, we can't have, you know, uh, exclusive religion and religion should be universal, and therefore we create a religion that's universal. Right. It's not it's not a good idea of the next modern what we believe to be the next development of religion. It was his own realization. It wasn't it wasn't a sense of more a modern a modern temperament like we all have. Right. People think, even people who believe that their religion alone is true, they wish all religions were true. They they, they wish other that but but still the, 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 their text says it isn't, you know, they aren't. But it's not like that. It's not a modern open mindedness. It was based upon the <laughs> deepest realizations. From a life continuously obsessed and absorbed on, on God and divine reality, and he felt that he he realized the divine mother, and primarily first just out of devotion and longing, right? Then the divine mother, he believes, sent him different teachers, right? Different gurus of different traditions to initiate him into the proper forms of different lineages, right? And then he practices those forms and came, and at the end of, of of each, he found his own divine mother, shining in the, in the form of the realization offered by that religion. So he found that when he said that God is one, I mean, we quoted, we quote from the Rig Veda, God is one, sages call it differently. Yeah, you know, it's this funny, this conversation. He saw it, you know, he he realized it. And so when he trained his own disciples, you know, this is a very important uh, gift to the world in a certain sense. Maybe it's the most important gift to the world. Yeah, this this conversation is reminding me of another one that we had a, a while back, which is, um, you know, you were you were born in Mexico, and we we were talking about goddess traditions in in the New World, in and 
um, how uh, you know when you're tu- when you're tuned tuned into the goddess, even though it can t- she can take a particular form like Kali, yeah. that there are all these goddesses and, in- and there's these interesting relationships. And I remember we had an interesting conversation about some research you had done, you guys together, I think, um, into uh, Aztec goddesses and finding interesting really rich and resonant connections with Kali. And and I'd love to hear a little bit just about, you know, uh, whether it has to do partly with with coming from Mexico or whatever, but just how, again, there's something about the land and the history and the peoples who are here on the other side of the planet that can still tune these energies in in really rich ways. So I think, from my understanding of my way of understanding the, the, the quote-unquote truth of all religions, right? You know, one paper that I'm working on, trying to work on right now, is this idea of Ramakrishna, the motherhood of God and universality of religion. These three are deeply related. Okay, the, uh, because not only do we see the, the universe, but we see behind almost every religion, there is, there is an ancient mother tradition that seems to be indigenous to the planet itself or to the earliest humans on the planet, as religion developed itself, right? And so we, when Sri Ramakrishna saw the truth of Islam and Christianity, he, it's not that he said, oh, actually, right, Jesus is the only way. He died for our sins, and, and, only, and, and by the truth of Christianity is that he died for our sins, removes our original, uh, our original sinful nature, uh, and, and, and we get to go to heaven because we believe in him. That's not the truth of Christianity he saw. He saw in the court, in the, the, the divinity shining through Jesus, revealed through Jesus in his tradition, is the ancient mother, the, mother, the, the, the divine reality behind everything. So even the truth of religions, according to Sri Ramakrishna, comes from this motherhood, the original, the, what we call Adya Shakti, the primordial reality, the primordial realization, primordial source. Right, and and so it's the easiest to see when you look at uh, when you look at other cultures. You look to Mexico, especially South America. They had many deities, of course, but behind everything, there is an, uh, an orientation towards the mother goddess, the mother reality, the mother of the gods. You know, you have the million, you have the thousands of gods. We have the mother of the gods, right? And then she's still being worshipped. We see, we can see she's still being worshipped. She's taking new forms, right, appropriate to the time that could survive conquest and the like. Right, uh, uh, but you know she's still being worshipped. So it's it's especially, of course, I'm Mexican, so maybe I'm I'm inclined, but I'm more American than Mexican. I've been here since I was three months old. Right, I'm Mexican only passport, <laughs> not even. <a> passport. <laughs> right, I barely speak Spanish anymore, unfortunately. Right, uh, but 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 so I, it's not that I, I I I we see the 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 ancient mother in Mexico because we're Mexican. We see the ancient mother because we we love the ancient mother. The mother of all things, the mother, the mother reality, the, the ground of being, the source of being, and turns out we're not the only ones who worship her, right? And we're not the only when that worshipped her. You know, she was worshipped by 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 almost all of humanity throughout all time, almost until now here. You know, she was uh, a major part of religious consciousness in the ancient world. Yeah, in India, very nice. In India, she's still prominent. Right. The rest of the world, she's been forgotten mostly or somewhere in Mexico, an example, she's been masked, masked, you know, and she's taken other forms. People still have devotion to her right? or, or new revelations or, she, or she's revealed other revelations while she can still interact with people. But in Mexico, but in India, it, her, her worship is still living. It's not historical, which is wonderful. Well, I, I'm curious, so speaking on like the, the you had mentioned uh, 
talking at the Institute for Yoga Studies and how you were you were addressing things like prana and, and whatever, but you were doing it very much with this, through the lens of, of, of puja, which is less familiar to probably a lot of, you know, yeah. spiritual but not religious people interested in yoga and, and chakras and energy systems. When, when you... Uh, you know, come in contact with people when they come, when they visit the temple and they're really coming from that thing, which is so yeah. huge. I mean, there's so much yoga and some of it is very commercial and there's a lot of yeah. sort of cheesiness aspects. And then there's these weird little bits of, of, yeah. of tradition mixed in and it's sort of confusing. I'm, I'm, cu- I'm just curious how you've come to think about the sort of development of uh, Western yoga, you know, sort of in your backyard. I mean, LA is as much a center of it as anywhere on the planet. Um, yeah. In terms of working through uh, these issues, is there an attraction? Is there a resistance? How is there a connection there? How do you reflect on on that sort of yeah, phenomenon? That's a very good question because it's you know we we've my uh, default lately has been to hold my tongue. <laughs> <laughs> right, because you know, like I've been invited in the early years, I was invited to speak at or, or give presentations at these type of functions, like you know, Bhakti Fest or other you know, uh, yoga groups or kirtan things like that. And we appreciate, you know, and we also enjoy a lot of these type of things. We also had some connection with these things, but I, I found myself being highly by temperament, perhaps also, and by training, maybe to be uh. Critical, but not necessarily helpful. Critical, right? And so I left it to other people who are better speaking in those in those worlds. You know, as of late, it's like I've gotten better <laughs> in a certain sense, right? Because we appreciate their sincerity everywhere. In the beginning, we found it, we found it based on sincerity, but slowly, as the the commercial aspect took over, right, and it got repackaged and repackaged, repackaged. I, it's almost hard to see the original in the new package. Right. And, and so it's it's so we, so rather than critiquing or criticizing or even or guiding the new form of, of, of the, the yoga tradition and the, the Western Western yoga tradition, should I say. Right. Is that we've 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 just decided, OK, we'll just we'll just do the prop. We'll do the traditional thing. Still, we're Westerners in a Western world. So we, it's informed by the modern sensibilities. Right. But we just try. We just hold we hold the space. Right. So while, while Kirtan's doing all kinds of things we're doing, we do Kirtan every day here, you know, facing, you know, with our back towards a quote unquote audience, no audience. And we sing from off. Right. And we do, we do, we're doing yoga. We're doing yoga, uh, not publicly, uh, not on stage, not in a class. You know, we're doing, we're doing everything. Uh, we try to do all, we, 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 we demonstrate, we live and we demonstrate kind of the older way. Yeah, I, you know, in a way, that's a uh, it's a very beautiful place and uh, to to kind of wind <laughs> so, up because one 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 part I want uh, remembering just now is that that that's one of the problems that India itself is looking to the West, right? And so and we see even yo- like the yoga classes that are done here now those can be done in Delhi now, right? You you have hot yoga in Delhi. Right. You know, it's like it's hot enough in Delhi. You don't need, a, you know, so, so, uh, and so, so I think that's a danger. We, sh- we look to the, we look to the tr- tradition, although we're Westerners in a Western culture, right, we're looking towards the ancient tradition, the Indian tradition. We're looking to the, the traditional India to inform our practice, right? But the danger right now is that, that, that uh, modern India is, is two things that are happening. One is that, that as, as you mentioned a little bit in your discussion with Usha, that there has been a, 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 a was the religion was the Hindu nationalist movement one one attempt uh, 
to uh, to claim Hinduism and yoga as a in, in, with a bit of a nationalistic uh, identity uh, politics, right? But also to look to the West. Another trend tendency is to look to the West to inform yoga, and I think that's a very um, that could be very bad. But it's it's maybe I think like like if a Westerner takes up yoga for like let's say for a good you know, for nice abs or something or for health, right? It's still a beautiful practice, right? And it, ha and, it and something happens, it still works. I know so many people that start at the most mundane um, um, level of, of yoga practice, but because of yoga, because of kirtan or because of, of, of meditation or like that, there's an, there's an inner blooming and awakening. It's still work. And then they look for something, they look to what's happening, what's happening to me, where is this from? What's the context of this? And they look for something a little more traditional. I think that's beautiful. So, I mean, so that's why I have to watch my tongue. My tendency is to be critical, but actually it's actually a beautiful thing in, at one level. Well, right? People what I, what I wanted to reflect on. If it happens the other way around, it's very dangerous. Yeah. When traditional people look to the West and go, oh, really it's just about health or just about, or it's about a, 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 it's a entertainment. I see what it's you're saying. Entertainment yeah. or, 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 or business, you know, and so that's a very dangerous, I think that's a very, da a very sad situation, dangerous situation. Right. Well, I, I wanted to just sort of uh, uh, support your, your kind of coming to this place of just holding the model of yeah. like yeah. holding the, holding the containing, creating the container, sustaining yeah. the container, but not trying to get involved in fighting the battle in, in, in out promoting them and out promote marketing them yeah, with yeah. your traditional it's approaches. It's using the language. It's true. Uh, I have to say like that, I mean, they're not my enemies, but using the language of, using the language of the enemy, to use yeah. the, the no. term, you know, although they're not, we're not enemies, right? We're all, we have more in common than, <laughs> right? Absolutely. Well, we're, we're actually going to have to uh, to end it here. I knew this was, you know, it always feels too short, uh, but I wanted to, to thank you, uh, Swami Bhajanananda and, and Usha Harding. Thank you so much for uh, talking to us on, on Expanding Mind. Thank you. It's been very wonderful. Bye. <laughs> And I want a few seconds to, to thank you also that we, we go back to your book, The Visionary State, all the time. Yes. I, we, we read from it out loud. It's so good. <laughs> That's wonderful. I love that. Wonderful. Uh, uh, your analysis of, of modern culture and spiritual culture. You're one of the unique voices. Well, great thoughts. Yeah, great. very great. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and so I encourage all listeners, if you're in Orange County, uh, worth, worth, uh, worth stopping by. And, and also remember that, uh, the, that Kali Mandir is on their 25th anniversary fund, fundraiser. So if, you're, if you feel the call, uh, don't, don't uh, stand in the way of it. <laughs> and with that, uh, till uh, next week, keep your minds open. Yeah, I'm on. <laughs>